Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're all familiar with the concept of metropolitan areas, you know, the rest of a city's economic machine that doesn't fall within the smaller political boundary of a San Francisco or Los Angeles or whatever. But urban economist Richard Florida argues, what if that way of thinking about a city's operation is in need of an update? He proposes that cities like San Francisco, New York, Dublin can be thought of as, quote, meta cities, which maintain satellite relationships, not just with their suburbs, but with cities across the country and world. We'll talk about the data behind the theory and what it means for our region. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Mandrigal. Who around here wouldn't like a theory that places San Francisco at the center of the tech solar system, holding our satellite cities gently in orbit? You're Austin, Seattle, Portland. Well, that's one interpretation of Richard Florida's new argument about the economic geography of cities. Longtime academic, he became famous for identifying what he called the creative class, a different kind of worker with different needs from traditional manufacturing labor or executive managers, His work has proven influential among city leaders over time, too, so it's worth taking note of his new meta-city theory, which was published in the Harvard Business Review. And Richard joins us here this morning. Welcome, Richard. Hey, Alexis. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, nice to talk with you. We're also joined by Molly Turner from UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Thanks for joining us, Molly. Hi. Happy to be here. So, Richard, let's walk through the theory a little bit here. What is a metacity in this new kind of formulation that you have? Well, it's it's worth even taking a step back from that. Um, and you're in San Francisco. Uh, same could be said for New York or London. You know, if you think back just a couple, three years ago, uh, in 2020, this was the death of all big cities. Mm. That remote work was a zero-sum game. And that talented people, entrepreneurs, startups, and anyone who could was going to escape the dirty, dense, virus-laden cities. Mm -hmm. San Francisco at the very top of that list, New York and London. They were going to go to the suburbs, to rural areas, and, of course, to these rise of the rest Zoom towns, Miami, uh, Austin, uh, Nashville, and many, uh, and smaller ones, Bozeman, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Park, uh, Park City. And so, you know, I'm a pretty reasonable academic. And 
I, I actually wanted to get beyond the punditry and to dig into the argument. So mm-hmm. there's a very, very smart fellow at Stanford I've known for a long time. You've probably had him, Nick Bloom, who has done very detailed surveys of remote work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Nick's conclusion very, very early on was that remote work and the associated digital technologies were a kind of phase shift or inflection point in the, the way work was organized. And that th- this would be something for which we would never return. And mm. and according to his predictions, and which have held true, about 20% of all working days would be done remotely. And, and that's the backdrop in which m- myself, along with several really capable people at Boston Consulting Group, who are much more hands-on, much more closely working with corporations and cities than I am, began, and this took a long time, Alexis and Molly, this probably took us two years to develop this hmm. idea in partnership with Harvard. So it wasn't something that just popped out. And But now, if you think about the history of cities, um, cities, the key to understanding how cities have expanded and have enabled new rounds of growth under modern economies is that there's been a set of new technologies that allow cities to expand their physical footprint. The horse, the horse and buggy, the streetcar suburbs, right? I mean, that's a Sam, right Sam Bass Warner's favorite for everyone. Saying, Sam Bass Warner's famous book on streetcar suburbs, the automobile and the interstate highway, and you know, you think about that in an urban settlement or a metropolitan area, the the, the area that uh, the catchment area of a city is literally defined as a shared labor market. So one day we were just playing around with this idea that what if it wasn't a zero sum thing? What if it wasn't Austin versus San Francisco, Miami versus New York, you know, Nashville versus Los Angeles, and, and so on? What if digital technologies of remote work were a new way of expanding the so-called urban hinterland? And and what if they were a way to allow and you know, every time it's so funny before we did the research, you know, you get on a Zoom. And there'd be a company headquartered in San Francisco, and there'd be seven people in San Francisco, and three people in Austin, and one person in Miami, and one person in Bozeman. And you do it with a financial firm, and there'd be 12 people in New York, and you know four people in Miami, one in LA, two in Bozeman, one in Park City. And, and I began to think, it, it, just a hypothesis, that you could have a, a new technology that was digital that it would allow a city to expand its economic fo- footprint with ex- or its economic catchment area without expanding its physical footprint. And, and then we can talk about this if you like, or hmm. we can go back to it later. We actually started to look at some data and the data was at least, look, I don't want to say this is 100% proof, but it was at least suggestive that this idea had legs. And, and once we looked at the data, we said, okay, we have enough to write an order. And that's basically looking at talent flows, like people moving between these cities based on, you know, the data you're able to get a hold of from from LinkedIn. Yeah. So I had become captivated with LinkedIn's economic graph a long time ago. I think I probably wrote a piece on CityLab five or six years ago using these data. Um, and, and so the first thing I began to do is just look, and they, and they don't publish like an org, a data set you can download. They just publish like something on New York, something on San Francisco, something on Chicago. They do about 20 metropolitan areas. So I looked at New York, and it was quite clear that the largest talent flow out of New York by huge orders of magnitude was Miami. And the largest flow of people coming to Miami, even bigger, was from New York. You know, I did the same thing for for Los Angeles. 
you know, Los Angeles people were, were, were going to Nashville and, and, and the people coming to, I mean, Nashville was gaining people from Chicago and elsewhere, but gaining lots of people from LA. And when I did it for San Francisco, Austin was not the number one place um, that San Francisco was losing people to uh, other metros it was in the top five or six. But, you know, the number one incoming from, from Austin was San Francisco. And mm-hmm. I had done enough research when you mentioned my book, Rise of the Creative Class. It, really, that book was about my concern teaching at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, that many of our students were not only going to the Bay Area, but they were going to Austin to take jobs in Austin. In many ways, that book was a meditation on why 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 was Pittsburgh losing to Austin? I thought Pittsburgh was a great city. Hmm. What I learned, of course, is that the Austin civic leadership had been poaching San Francisco Bay Area, or at that time, Silicon Valley companies, from they've been polishing these companies for 20 years. Like this wasn't a new thing that Austin was trying to grow off the backs of San Francisco. This this was a three or four decade old thing. So fortunately, uh, Alexis and Molly, my colleagues at BCG had LinkedIn data. They have a partnership with LinkedIn. They had these data. So what we did was simply count up for the top 25 or 35 cities. It's in the article. Mm-hmm. The number of cities they have significant talent flows with and that's what we did. And then looked at the flows between cities. But, you know, we were able to to kind of come up with a framework that enabled us to look at global cities in a new way. And I, I want to say just one thing before maybe we talk about the Bay Area. The biggest surprise to us in the whole thing, London and New York came up as a dominant superstar hubs. They had the most connections. It's the next group of cities mm. that literally, like our mouths were wide open, we fell on the floor. <laughs> It wasn't Tokyo, and it wasn't Hong Kong, and it wasn't Chicago, and it wasn't Frankfurt, the obvious suspects. What it was was Dubai, Dublin, Singapore, Bengaluru, and then, and of course, Paris, Los Angeles, and and also Berlin. And what that suggested to us is that there was a group of cities like Dubai and Singapore and Dublin in particular that were actually trying to grow by attracting talent from other places. And they had done so much more effectively. Like they've leveraged their airports. They built these new mm-hmm. condominium towers. They built up their waterfronts. They attracted hospitality and restaurants. They became interesting. Pl- and they're not necessarily my cup of tea, right? They're not San Francisco or New York or London or Paris or more my, Berlin or more my cup of tea. But they had gone up the ranks ahead of Chicago, ahead of Hong Kong, a- ahead of uh, Frankfurt. And I just thought that was interesting. So I think that was the biggest finding that there were these new kinds of cities that were building themselves up as centers of flows and centers of connections and as hubs in a network that we frankly hadn't considered. Yeah. We're talking about this concept of meta cities and the idea that San Francisco is the center of the tech talent solar system. Joined by Richard Florida, university professor at the Rotman School of Management, author of The Rise of the Creative Class, of course, and co-author of a recent Harvard Business Review article, The Rise of the Meta City. We'd love to hear from you. Have you left the Bay Area? Are you remote working for some other, uh, in some other place? Maybe, and I'm really interested in this, have you just moved to the Bay Area or moved back? What brought you here? What brought you back? What would keep you here? The phone number is 866-733-6786. The email address is forum at kqed.org. You can, of course, look at all of our social uh, things over KQED Forum. Molly, I wanted to just, um, you know, you study, you're an expert in like sort of tech and its impact on cities and you study these things. You hear the, you hear the theory. What's your like just initial reaction? 
I think it's a lot of fun to see some data to back up the connections that a lot of us know or feel viscerally to other cities. You know, one of the things I, when I'm teaching this concept to my students, I say, think about what cities you would live in, what cities you feel most in common with. It's like some people in San Francisco might say they feel more in common with Austin than they feel with Fresno, which Mm. is in our backyard here in, in California. So I think it's a neat way to understand kind of the interconnectedness of our economies with other cities around the world. But I would I would caution people not to overinterpret this to say that, um, you know, the tech industry is decamping to these other cities. Mm. I, I don't think, Richard, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that's the argument you're making. But I think that that's something people have long talked about here in the Bay Area since the beginning of the pandemic. Are we losing the tech industry? Some people are excited about that. Other people are really worried about that. This exodus to other cities, I think, is... Overhyped, and I think mm-hmm. it's useful if I could share yeah. some some data about what's happened over recent yeah, sure. years with the industry in the Bay Area. So, tech jobs certainly are more likely to be able to be remote and have been remote, and that's why San Francisco has been so slow to return back mm-hmm. to the office because tech is our number one industry here. But the people who aren't coming back to downtown San Francisco, it's not because they've moved to Austin; mm. it's because they've moved to other parts of Northern California, Mm. still within commuting, i.e. most likely driving distance, to their offices. So they haven't moved out of state. The people who have moved out of state in the past couple years are service workers, Mm. people who don't have college degrees. Their industries were really disrupted by the pandemic. They couldn't work remotely. And they aren't able to afford housing prices in the Bay Area. And that's the industry that really hasn't recovered here in the Bay Hmm. Area. Tourism, retail, food service. That used to be the second biggest industry in the Bay Area. It's not anymore. We're going to keep talking about this concept of metacities, what it could mean for San Francisco and, you know, really this region broadly. Joined by Molly Turner, lecturer at Haas School of Business at Berkeley, of course, expert on tech and its impact on cities in Richard, Florida. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about concept of the meta city and the idea that San Francisco is kind of the center of the tech talent solar system with cities like Austin as planets in our orbit. Sorry, Austin. We're joined this morning by Richard Florida, university professor at the Rotman School of Management. He's the author of The Rise of the Creative Class, of course, co-author of a recent Harvard Business Review article, The Rise of the Meta City. Also joined by Molly Turner, lecturer at the Huss School of Business at Berkeley, of course, an expert on tech and its impact on cities. I'd love to hear from you if you have experienced some of this change, if you've left the Bay Area, if you've been remote working from another uh, place, or maybe you've moved back to the Bay Area, or you're, you're newly here. Uh, you know, you can, of course, become a member of KQED if you're new here, and then uh, call the show. Uh, the number is 866-733-6786, or you can email forum at KQED. Uh, .org. Um, Richard, you know, one thing I like about the meta city theory when I was kind of reading about it is it kind of formalizes a lot of the kind of intuitions I have about, you know, the tech sector's kind of reach and the fact that, you know, it doesn't seem like play, like tech is leaving so much as its kind of tentacles have now reached into all these um, other cities. Tell us a little bit about what it is for San Francisco to be kind of a tech talent hub in the way you're describing. And I think you're you're spot on right. Just, just a couple things about the Bay Area in context setting. I mean, Molly is 1,000% right on two counts. One, that more people are leaving for other parts of the Bay extended Bay Area than Austin. I mean, Sacramento comes up as a metropolitan area that San Francisco lost more people on a per capita basis than, than Austin. Makes sense. And there's others. The second thing that Molly's spot on about is that there's cultural association uh, between places that are in the meta city galaxy. And I think, you know, if I was a Marxist, I would say that cult that cultural affiliation stems from related economic structures. So Austin has a tech-based economy like San Francisco. Miami has a finance and real estate-based economy like New York. Nashville has an entertainment and music-based economy like LA. And, and therefore, people feel both an economic and cultural similarity. But I think, and Molly was also spot on in saying the service workers, and Bill, this goes back to Bill Bishop's work a long time ago on The Big Sort. He, he literally found this 20 years ago. That, that San Francisco was attracting higher income, higher educated people in smaller households, and it was shedding mm -hmm. lower income, more service related people in larger households. But here's the thing I think about San Francisco that's really important. San Francisco gained a lot of these tech people, tech workers or creative class people, my word, beginning around the year 2000 with a big acceleration around 2010. If you just do the math, People who moved to San Francisco in 2000 and 2010 that were 22, how old are they? <laughs> right. There any, yeah. it's, it was a family formation bubble as well as an economic structure thing. So San Francisco had all these people at family formation age, many of them did what most Americans always do, move to adjacent, lower cost, more affordable suburbs with, in their perception, better public schools. And a few of them, not a few of them, a significant number, a non-trivial number, but less move to these other places. I think we track, uh, Alexis and Molly, we track on an ongoing basis the venture capital investment dollars. And it looked for a while during the pandemic that the Bay Area was, was losing those at the margin. Uh, Miami was growing a bit. Austin was growing a bit. There was a number of other places. 
if now you look at it post-pandemic, the Bay Area, particularly San Francisco, as opposed to the Silicon Valley, has resurged, L- not exclusively, but in part due to the AI boom. We're back. And We're back, looks, Richard. It looks, I think you're right, Alexis. It, it looks to me that San Francisco may be even more of the sun than it was. And and yes, there are these other places that do certain stuff that are connected to San Francisco, but that San Francisco remains the, the, the sun in which this galaxy kind of operates. Molly, you agree with that? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think... <clears throat> You know, there are a couple loud voices on Twitter or X who've proclaimed how they're leaving the Bay Area for Miami or Austin, and people tend to think the whole industry has left, and that couldn't be more false. I mean, something I like to remind people, while some of these companies have moved to other cities, they've kept their offices and employees in San Francisco. They would be foolish to leave the Bay Area altogether. We still have the global headquarters of Google. Apple, Facebook, Salesforce, Genentech, Airbnb, Twilio. Any city in the world would die to have just one of those companies Mm -hmm. uh, headquartered there. We've got, by some measures, half of the world's top 50 generative AI companies are in the Bay Area, 12 of them are headquartered in San Francisco. Hayes Valley has so many of these AI hacker houses, people are calling it Cerebral Valley. I don't know about that name. I don't know that one's going to stick, really. <laughs> but yeah. I think I think the answer that Richard and I are saying is San Francisco is not losing its tech dominance. It's just what I would ca- say spreading the wealth to other cities around the country and the world. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I'm not sure everyone if in all those first... cities thinks it's a good thing. <laughs> well, well that, we should talk about that. I mean, there are yeah. I used to host I've I host every year for a decade government delegations from all over the world that come out here for these study trips of Silicon Valley. They come and visit all the tech offices. They come visit the campuses where all the students are learning how to build mm-hmm. these things. And they say, how can we recreate the magic of this place? And I say, great. I know you want to figure out tax incentives to lure, you know, open AI mm-hmm. to open their second office in your city or whatever. But really what you need to be focusing on is housing and transit. Don't repeat our mistakes. We can get more into that if you'd like, but there, there's plenty to, to that these other yeah. cities need to learn. And Richard can tell you yeah. his report touches on this. Miami has become, by some measures, the least affordable city in the country. Huh. And that's because all of these people moving there, yeah. the housing production couldn't keep up with it. And yeah. so that's going to be a big problem for some of these, quote unquote, satellite cities. Richard, do you want to chip in? Yeah. Yeah, I want to build on some, a couple of things Molly said, because they're so interesting and so spot on. You, you, you know, one of the things I did in, in writing this article was go back to an age-old concept in economic geography called the spatial division of labor. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a spatial division of labor that is both physical and digital. And it makes perfect sense. You know, if a place is expensive, if you want to outsource some stuff that you can do it to a place like Austin or you could do it to a place like Portland. or So I think this idea of not thinking of cities as separate entities, but part of a geographic division of labor. And then, and then I think there's something else that Molly said that is at work here. I think there was a small group, a very loud, right of center, libertarian tech and financial moguls venture capitalists, financiers, and entrepreneurs who looked at what Jeff Bezos did with HQ2 and said, oh, that's interesting. He kind of got mad at Seattle 
because Seattle wasn't treating them the way he thought they should, and they were trying to impose his head tax. San Francisco, I don't like San Francisco. They're woke. They're progressive in, in local government. They don't really take care of us, and they care about other things. And so we're going to make a statement. We're going to move two of us to Miami, and then a, a, a Chicago-based financier followed them, and Bezos just recently followed them. We're going to move to Austin and say, look, we're going to recreate a tech ecosystem crypto hub here. But it was all BS to begin with. It was really an attempt to say, wake up, don't take us for granted, become more middle of the road, get rid of your kind of progressive countenance, become more business friendly. And, and as Molly said, they didn't move a thing other than themselves. They moved themselves. And, and of course, they're benefiting from a lower tax regime. But they left 99% of their corporate capabilities in the Bay Area or Los Angeles or New York or Chicago. And, and there's a recent article, Molly, you may you may have seen this or Alexis, someone did a little investigative reporting recently, and I forget where it was, it wasn't in one of the big publications, but actually made this case in a pretty detailed way that this was part of an orchestrated campaign to kind of make the New Yorks and San Francisco's and others of the world become more business friendly. And that, that's what I think was at the yeah. nub of it. Let's um, bring in a caller here. Let's bring in Adrian Flores, uh, new to uh, San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Hey, good, good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, cheers. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I moved to San Francisco in 2017. I sort of did the reverse thing that the callers or the speakers are talking about. I, I moved from Austin and, um, you know, I had moved to San Francisco just sort of to realize my earning potential, my hmm. highest earning potential. Um, and, you know, Austin being sort of a place where... Um, you know, had been seeing an influx of people moving from the Bay Area with money and, like, sort of kicking me out of rental unit to <laughs> rental unit as rents went up. You're like, um, if I can't so beat them, like, I'm going to join them. Yeah. Come join them. Yeah, exactly. And I guess I sort of bring up some points that sort of were made before I called in. But, um, you know, a lot of the people that, that I've made friends with in San Francisco that have moved to Austin have moved to like start a family. And, um, you know, my wife and I decided to not have kids to sort of feel like our, our highest earning years are, are still in front of us. And, um, you know, the pay scale is just not the same. If you move to one of these other, hmm. these other cities like Austin, you know, you still San Francisco to a lesser extent, New York and London are sort of the highest, you know, you get paid sort of relative to where you're living if you move with with some of these tech companies. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I just thought I'd add some of those comments. Yeah, um, no, no. appreciate it, Adrian. Thanks, uh, thanks so much. I mean, Molly, it is the the case, right? I mean, that because of the size of our tech hub and the competitiveness between companies, right? That the pay scale here is different than it would be if you move to Portland and want to kind of do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's all relative, right? The cost of living in Portland is lower. And so if you don't get San Francisco's salary working remotely in Portland, but you get Portland's salary, you can probably still, you know, if you're working for a tech company, you can probably still afford housing in Portland, but then that pushes other people out of housing in Portland. And I think that's what a lot of these satellite cities are experiencing, right, is their housing production hasn't kept up with these influx of 
remote or new workers from the Bay Area, some of whom may still be making Bay Area salaries. And for them, housing feels relatively affordable. But for the people who've been in these cities for a long time, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're starting to experience really what we've experienced here for several decades in the Bay Area, right, which is um, higher income workers moving in for these jobs where they can make a lot of money and the salaries with these jobs keep going up and up to keep up with the cost of housing. I mean, that's one of the reasons why so many of these tech companies finally have gotten engaged in housing policy in the Bay Area, because they're seeing so much of the salary that they're having to give to workers go toward housing, right? But then the service workers, the people who work in the world that supports Mm -hmm. the tech industry in these downtowns that make them thriving places for these tech workers to finally go into the office, they can't afford housing anymore and are getting pushed out of not just the Bay Area, but now Austin and Portland and Miami. You know, uh, Richard, that is where I wanted to take the conversation is to is becoming a meta city good for the people of the city? It might be good for the tech sector, right? I mean, they can have some more flexibility for their employees to have, you know, uh, lower cost of living, you know, work arrangements in various cities. But is it actually good for people who live here? No. And, you know, as Molly knows, I wrote a whole book about that called The New Urban Crisis, published in 2017 when Adrian was moving to San Francisco. And I said, you know, the crisis of cities is a crisis of capitalism and it's a crisis not of production, but reproduction that that these cities were unable to provide the basic services that were required. But here's what I think we have. And and Alexis, you may this may resonate with you. This is a horrifically Darwinian form of tech-driven capitalism. And, and if you really just think about what Adrian said, and, and I saw this 20 years ago when I was writing Rise of the Creative Class, young people made this calculation in tech and in finance and in media. We are going to go to the center of the universe where housing is pricey and it's hard to live and it's expensive because we get paid a premium. Now, what we know, because the research has been done, is that premium translates into higher housing prices across the board, but it's sufficient enough so that those young, dynamic finance and tech and media or creative class workers can more than afford to live there before they have kids. The Darwinian part is that people figured this out and companies figured this out. Tech skills decline quickly. So if it gets expensive, when people have a family, they'll decide to move out and we'll get a new round of people, mm-hmm. young, dynamic people from Stanford or MIT or Carnegie Mellon. So it's a horribly Darwinian system that works well for a technological and financial elite. It works well for companies at the top of the ladder, but it works horrifically. And, and you know, Molly mentioned the statistic about Miami becoming the most unaffordable place. I, I spent part of the winter in Miami. You know, there are people moving to Miami who work in the financial markets who make really good salaries and can't buy a house in Miami. So now you've got a system that is beginning to outprice not just the service workers and the working people, but the professional class as well. So, no, it's it's good for an elite. It's good for uh, elite companies, but it's not good for cities or society as a whole. So interesting. You know, um, let's bring in uh, Lisa in San Francisco. Welcome, Lisa. Hey, um, I'm calling. I I love this topic. I um, actually am originally from the Bay Area, and I work as a private chef, which is basically a luxury service. And I actually moved to Miami as well as uh, Southern California or Los Angeles. And I'm able to 
um, have more clientele here in the Bay Area because of this uh, broad higher income, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, have just kind of a better, I mean, for what I do, the Bay Area and San Francisco, it's a fantastic um, culinary mm. place. Um, and I also just have to mention, I think this might, I, I, my question too is, does the actual um, environment make a difference for why this creative mm. boom has happened here. It's a beautiful place with a great yes. uh, weather and temperature. Um, it has a lot of nature that is in the surrounding areas. I mean, we have backyards of, of basically, you know, woods and trees everywhere. And it's just different in comparison to Los Angeles as well as Miami. So. That's my question, but thank you. Uh, Lisa, wait, stay with us, stay with us for one second. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you think about the cost of living, right? I mean, you're even if you're able to get like a premium as a private chef from the people here because there's a large market for that, um, do you end up having to, you know, sacrifice in other ways and sort of where you're living or how you're living? You know, that's the great part. Um, prior, when I was living um, in the other areas, I did. But now, I mean, I'm kind of long in the tooth of working as a private chef, so I have the ability to have a higher, you know, charge more. Um, And so because of that, I I live pretty decent. And in comparison with my peers, I have a pretty good salary here in the Bay Area. Um, And I, I just, I made it work. I have a family now, and I appreciate the diversity. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you know, the ability to, you know, have just a really nice blend Mm -hmm. of nature, great people, um, and yeah, yeah, and and be able to have a living. But I know I'm, I'm, I might be a unicorn. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, congratulations, Lisa. That sounds awesome. Um, No, I read that's uh, honestly very happy for you. And that is that is awesome. Um, You know, we're getting other uh, comments from listeners, too, about kind of the importance of, you know, uh, kind of cultural affiliation. As Tita writes, you know, she says, I'm a retired tech manager. My last position in San Francisco was pre-pandemic. As a person of color, I'm not considering moves to Austin or Miami. However, our son and his wife moved to Sacramento with very close ties to their offices in the Bay area just people living out the theory here molly uh, it's uh it's also uh interesting we're talking about the concept of meta cities the idea that san francisco's kind of remains center of the tech talent solar system joined by richard florida university professor at the rotman school of management and molly turner lecturer at haas school of business at uc berkeley we'll get to more of your calls and comments right after the break have you just moved back to the bay area you just move here you just move away give us a call 866-733- Six seven eight six. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the concept of metacities and the idea that San Francisco, along with other cities, can remain kind of the, the center of a solar system of cities around them. New theory from Richard Florida. He's got an article out in Harvard Business Review with some colleagues called The Rise of the Meta City. He's a university professor at the Rotman School of Management. We're also joined by Molly Turner, a lecturer at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, an expert on tech and its impact on cities. Let's bring in another call here. Zach in San Mateo, welcome. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on. I um, I uh, my wife and I moved um, during kind of the bottom of the pandemic in 2020. We realized we you know we were stuck in our apartment and realized we could do our jobs remotely. And for family reasons and kind of wanting to start our own family and be closer to the other family, we decided to move to the Portland metro area, mm-hmm. and uh, that really worked well for us uh, for quite a while. But we still maintained. It was interesting as you talked a lot about the show. We still had to kind of maintain all of our economic ties back to the to the Bay Area, and so there was you know a decent amount of travel and uh, also just kind of emotional and financial connection back to the Bay during that time. Um, but we actually just moved back this week. Uh, oh wow! Welcome Area. back. Just a data um, point live yeah. on the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason for that is because the, the the startup uh, company I was working for had to wind down, and so I was faced with this situation where I really you know biotech is really nucleated either in the Bay Area or in Cambridge, Mass, mm-hmm. and with a little bit of satellite in Seattle or San Diego, and so uh, virtually nothing in the Portland metro area. And so it was. I was faced with this option of really trying to find remote work in that space, which is becoming more difficult as things kind of recover from, you know, to normalcy from the pandemic, um, or moving to one of those centers. And since we already had all of our... <laughs> All of our family, you know, or excuse me, friends and yeah. back in the Bay, it made sense to just come back here. And um, yeah, so I think a lot of the stuff on the call has resonated today. That's so um, and the one other comment I wanted to say is it was interesting, the comments about the cultural relationships, uh, you know, being in the Portland metro area, it, it felt very culturally familiar to us coming from the Bay, kind of in our personal lives. Um, but from an economic perspective, it just always felt very different to us than the economy of the Bay Area. And so it felt much more natural trying to come here and look for, you know, back for a job mm. as opposed to trying to find something there and make it work. Yeah, Portland is surprisingly small, I think, having grown up, you know, outside of there. Um, and it, it it does not feel the same as the Bay Area. It does. It feels like a like a satellite. I, I agree with that in, in terms of, particularly on the, on the tech side of things. Um, Zach, welcome back. Glad to have you. Make sure to re-up you. your membership to KQED. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, when when you hear uh, a story like that, Richard, you kind of, one thing that I, I see is a little bit of like how the lag of the pandemic continues, right? Like in, in Zach's story, you know, it's like they, the, the business winds down, he needs to get a new job. And it's at, only at that point, you know, kind of a couple of years after, you know, the, the peak of the pandemic that we see this kind of return. When do you think we will have a sense of what San Francisco in a post-pandemic way looks like in, in the data? Um, 
I think now, Alexis, I think, I, you know, we spend the winter in Miami. So I'm talking to you right now from Miami. I learned when we moved to Toronto, this thing Canadians call snowbird. As soon as someone loses a job or doesn't like their job and has to go back into the labor market, they go back to New York. And and some some don't want to go back. Some like warmer weather. But exactly what Zach said and, you know, I, I think the challenge that is that it's it's not going to fix the downtown. I think that's what the, the assumption people make. Going back to work will somehow fix the old office towers. I think that's a separate conversation. But I think we're seeing it now. The other thing, which the previous caller, who I'm forgetting uh, his or her name, is the, the salary premium is just so high in the thick labor market of San Francisco or New York or London that, you know, I've met a lot of people around the country in some of the smaller towns who made a move as a couple with young children. And when that job, that remote job didn't work anymore for them, for a whole variety of reasons, they had to move back mm-hmm. because the two incomes they could gain was much higher. And then the final thing, you know, which which is why I think I think it's not just the cluster. I think that the woman who was a, a private chef nailed this. It's productive and it's beautiful. And there's a fellow, folks listening in, his name is David Albuy. He's an urban economist. And about 10 years ago, he wrote an essay in which he, you know, monetized, and there's always issues with this, the kind of productivity premium and the amenity, natural beauty, mm. restaurant, you know, cultural scene. He monetized all of this and created an overall index. The freaking Bay Area <laughs> was like orders of magnitude higher than anywhere else. It, it was, it, maybe it was Talk my language, place, Richard. Yeah. It, it was unreal. And so how do you dethrone... And I love Detroit. My wife's family's from Detroit. Detroit's coming back. But Detroit or Pittsburgh never had that amenity. It wasn't as beautiful. It wasn't this part of just a natural. And, and San Francisco combines productivity and innovation with amenity, which I think is really hard to dethrone. That's great. Um, let's bring in uh, Delal in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi. Hey, welcome. Hello. Tell us your story. Thank you. Um, I recently moved, actually, a couple of months back, moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco. Um, and I just want to say that income inequality here uh, is through the roof. I work for a nonprofit, and it's really hard uh, to afford living here, despite progressive policies around rent control and such. And uh, it's just, you know, median incomes of greater than $100,000 make it unaffordable and price out a lot of people. Uh, but um, having said that, I, I really wanted to uh, experience living in San Francisco, probably living for a year here, and then either find a job in the tech industry or switch to a more affordable place in mm. the Bay. Yeah, Dilal, thank you for um, bringing that perspective. You know, Molly, you've, you've- talked about this it's not just service workers right i mean we have a, a massive kind of nonprofit uh sector here too right that is yeah. trying to deal with all all kinds of different um issues i how can we work on some of these problems i mean this is your area of expertise the impact that yeah. tech has on city so what about like the other folks <laughs> you know yeah you know it's hard because for the past 15 years or so, tech has really been blamed for these problems in the Bay Area. And I get it. You see the Google buses zooming down past everybody waiting for the muni buses. And 
and those workers outbidding other folks on apartments. And, you know, the tech industry hasn't made it particularly easy not to blame them because there's some strong personalities that have been somewhat um, loud in their uh, sentiments about the Bay Area. But really, we can't blame the tech industry for these problems. These are problems that have been decades, generations in the ma- in the making. Like I said earlier, job growth just far outpaced housing production, not just in the Bay Area, in the whole state. And that's been decades in the making. And it's going to take, unfortunately, decades to fix it. And in the meantime, I really worry, like this caller said, that income inequality is going to continue to grow, that new workers, higher earning workers are going to move in here and the folks who can't afford it are going to leave. And the folks I blame for this, frankly, are are our parents and grandparents. (laughs) Um, who didn't have good land use or economic or transportation planning policies. And, you know, I've been on the board of SPUR, an urban policy think tank, for a long time. SPUR's over 100 years old here in the Bay Area. And SPUR's recommendation to solving these inequality problems are the same things they've been advocating for long before the pandemic. We need to build more housing at all income levels near transit. We need to build more job, have jobs located near transit, despite our abysmal transit ridership numbers um, in Bay Area. We need to continue to invest in transit and to redesign it to accommodate what these new commute patterns are. Unfortunately, people are commuting from farther and farther away now. And we need to really diversify our downtown land uses and add more housing downtown so that our downtowns become more vital. Vital. That's going to take a really long time. And just like this caller said, I worry that in the meantime, it's going to get worse. Yeah. You know, one um, other kind of topic area to get to here is kind of also like the culture of of the Bay Area. Um, Richard, Florida, you mentioned, you know, earlier some of the things about progressive politics. But that also, you know, cuts cuts the other way. I mean, one listener asks, do guests think that people may return to California because of restrictive new laws on abortion and LGBTQ rights outside? And Tina, um, along similar lines, says, I wonder how the end of Roe will influence some workers to avoid states that make it illegal to obtain the necessary health care. This may make the gender inequality within tech exacerbated by a life or death decision for some. To some degree. I I don't know. It's very, because I spend so much time in blue and red states, people continue to move to Austin. They continue to move to Miami. They certainly continue to move to Nashville. Now, you could say those are blue places in red states. People trade off complex personal trade-offs. Mm-hmm. I would like to say, Alexis and Molly, that retrograde social and cultural policies will cause the creative class to massively relocate to blue cities and blue states, but I'm not sure the data support that. What One thing that worried me was the, the I mean, I love the success story, the private chef, and of course, probably like most of you, many of my friends are private chefs, but what that, what that struck me as is if I'm a tech Uh, oligarch or financial oligarch living in New York or London or San Francisco, I don't need the service workers around me. I can build my own, the equivalent of my own yacht. I I don't know whatever, what else I could use as an exemplar of that. I could have a private chef and private tutors and private massage therapists and private fitness trainers, and I could pay them enough and they can live close enough by that I can build a world. And, you know, I had one of these people say to me once, in the context of Miami, 
Well, we don't really go to the office and we don't really do meetings. We we just go on the boat and, you know, the boat's a better place because <laughs> our chef's better and our food's better than the restaurant. And I, I mean, until she said that, I couldn't process what he was talking about. But it might be that that this group of kind of Gilded Age oligarchs mm-hmm. believe incorrectly that they can create these bubble bubble places within cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. London, New York. It, it's not functional. It, it, it will go away. And I think Molly's point, I'd like to echo this. This is going to be generational. You know, anytime you have the rise of a new economic and technological system, whether that's industrialism or mass production or knowledge-based high-tech production, it takes a long time for society to catch up with its limits and its inequities and its uh, social problems and externalities. And I think it still hasn't dawned on us that this system is not sustainable or reproducible. Hmm. Let's bring in uh, Noah in Oakland. Welcome, Noah. Hi, thank you. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area and left for college, left for jobs for uh, the better part of a decade, and then came back just about a year ago. I've loved how different the perspective is, having left and come back you know, as a kid and now as an adult, being able to experience a whole different side of the region. What I will say is uh, a big question mark in my wife and I's mind is where the cost of living is going to go. And I think we originally planned that we would not stay in California for long. We can get good jobs with good wages. But compared to, you know, the cost of, of property, cost of childcare, um, we just don't feel like this is a good long-term solution, although we're not writing it off yet. One thing I did want to comment on is the guest's note about blaming our parents and grandparents for their poor land use uh, strategy of the, of the past. I think that's kind of a simplistic answer in that there have been, you know, affordable housing advocates in this area for decades trying to make some of this change. And that centrally, it, it just comes back to the fact that we have a lopsided consideration in our economic and political landscape where the rich and wealthy players get to really you know, decide where things are built and aren't. There's a ton of nimbyism, um, and it's really difficult to get things built in the Bay Area because no one wants affordable housing near them because of you know, the supposed undesirable people who may live there. Yeah. Um, and I, I really think, yeah, we need to step away from this you know, criticism of a generational divide and really focus on the core of the incentives because that's what drives people's behavior. Thanks, no. Molly, do you want to uh, you want to respond to that? I, I I assume you don't totally disagree there. No, in fact, um, I I share a similar story. I grew up here and came back after school, and and my parents still live here. And I would say my mom is one of the most yimby people I know. So uh, I agree somewhat. But I would say, you know, look, looking forward, I'm really heartened to see that housing affordability is the number one issue for most people in the Bay Area and in the state when you pull. And that we're starting to see in the past couple of years a lot of momentum to break down some of these land use policies that have really kept a lot of people, particularly low income people, out of all of these beautiful neighborhoods that we were just talking about. And so looking forward, I see a lot of change coming. Mm-hmm. But housing takes a long time to build. Yeah. It does here. And at least. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be a struggle for a while. And so I can't predict what housing prices are going to look like and, and tell this caller whether he should stay and when, when housing is going to be more affordable. But I am really optimistic that the culture around land use policy, I feel, has transformed. Let's squeeze in one more caller. Kevin in Cupertino. Welcome. 
Hi, um, this is a great topic. I, I just want to share. I mean, I'm still in the Bay Area. I'm not planning to leave, but I do travel quite a bit, part of my job um, as a consultant with other parts. So a couple of things I want to share. One, um, you know, beyond the, the housing and other things, there is a cultural value in the Bay Area, the whole innovation mindset, which I think it's hard to see outside, especially if you're in tech, you know, either in the product or others. I think that is something very unique, and you only notice that, you know, when you are in other parts of the country, right? Mm-hmm. That is something very unique to the Bay Area. You somehow miss it. Um, whenever I travel, I feel like, huh, that's, that's a world of difference. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, um, certainly there's a lot can be done in the Bay Area and people leaving mainly for housing and, and mainly housing the later reasons. But a lot of people left to Southern California, San Diego. I think, you know, there's so many people from the Bay Area moved to San Diego and they got in San Diego, probably home prices are probably doubled. And I wonder what that does to that economy at large in those areas because mm-hmm. you know bay area continue to feed you know there's a lot more income but i don't think it's equally you know distributed in san diego areas so i wonder yeah. like what that's going to do long term yeah kevin it's a, it's a great question you know uh richard real quick as we come to the end of the show i mean it does feel like when you know my geography is exactly the one that's painted here you know portland <laughs> seattle down in southern california sacramento in every single place that you go like that People are like, oh, my God, the housing prices. And it's you, you know, people and tech workers coming from the Bay Area. And it is just, you know, what what should these cities who feel this kind of onslaught of money, this flood of money, what can they be doing right now? You know, not, you know, 30 years ago, um, just in the last you know minute we have here. So my little catchphrase is the rise of the rest really is the rise of the rents. And there's new data which suggests the incomes of the new movers are inextricably higher than the people who live there. Mm. Look, they have to build more housing and they have to adopt affordable housing. But here's what worries me. Housing, I bought my first house for $135,000. You know what housing costs in the Bay Area now. (laughs) The property taxes on $130,000 or $200,000 or $250,000 and the insurance cost. Yeah, you can bear that. When housing prices get into the seven figures, it's not just what it takes to buy the house. What really keeps me up at night is even if we build like crazy, how do you carry that house? Mm-hmm. How do you pay the property taxes and insurance and associated costs? I think as a country, we've got to give this some real thought. Mm. It's not just building more and enable people to buy. It's, if you can buy it, how do you keep it going? And, and the history of affordable housing in America is the problem isn't getting people into the house. It's carrying the house. Mm. We've been talking about the concept of metacities based on this new Richard Florida article in the Harvard Business Review called The Rise of the Metacity. Of course, he's the author of The Creative Class and a university professor at the Rotman School of Management. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Nice to talk with you again. Thank you. Molly Turner has also joined us. She's a lecturer at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley and an expert on tech and its impact on cities. Thank you so much, Molly. Thanks. Thanks so much to everyone who called in. That was one of those shows where the anecdotes really match the data. So fascinating. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.